You are listening to Moments of Clarity, Journeys with EQ by Six Seconds Europe. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to the podcast. Everyone has a light bulb moment in their life that leads to change and life-changing events is a very topical subject as we come out of the pandemic and the world experiences new conflict. This emotional intelligence podcast has a simple premise that elicits some fascinating insights from our guests. Every Wednesday, I will be asking a special guest for their moments of clarity that contributed to changes in the course of their life journey. This season, the podcast will feature global experts on emotions, change and leadership, sharing real-life experiences and how they've used emotional intelligence to see the world and themselves more clearly. For more information on emotional intelligence and Six Seconds Europe, visit our website, sixseconds.org-eu. A moment of clarity, a moment is when a perception or an instinct is kind of crystallised by knowledge and education. I think so. And I was just thinking that moment that I'm off sailing in Hong Kong and I see this underneath the surface in the sea, this huge amount of of plastic waste. I then didn't act on that, but that my general instinct was the the moment of clarity only makes sense to me now, that moment. Exactly. Um, You you summed it up perfectly. Because often when I say moment of clarity, generally it's always going to be afterwards because when you're in right. the moment you never sometimes you might know there, there could be a moment but often for big things it's when you look back and you go that led to something yeah it's when it's when the perception or uh, an instinct is mm. then crystallized my guest today is luke douglas home who has been an environmental campaigner for over a decade and founder of the community interest company A Future Without Rubbish. Luke is currently running over 5,000 miles around Great Britain to raise awareness of environmental issues and carbon emissions. You can find his adventures under the hashtag Coastline Runner. He shares some inspiring moments today, including when he became environmentally aware in Hong Kong and his near-death horse riding accident in Transylvania in 2005. You're known as the, the coastline runner. I want people to know about this. And h- how did you come about that? So if you mm-hmm. could tell us your story, that moment of clarity that led you to where you are now. You're just about to start on this again, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I'm uh, going to restart this uh, this weekend. And I'm extremely nervous because of not having done this for four months because of injury and and fitness to add to the the general nerves if, in the in the uk it's now become incredibly cold <laughs> and the coastline running initiative uh is is keeping to the shoreline as much as possible of the uk and so that involves swimming and running so when the coldness is, is a big issue and that's actually what uh, caused my injury back in November was that I, I got a superficial in the vertical commas. It wasn't superficial to me. I have a superficial frostbite. I lost toenails running in the marshes. Um, and that then became infected and it became a, a, a big injury that 
pause this whole thing. So I'm just nervous about the cold dynamic of, of this Saturday. So we better let people know. So your plan is to run the whole coastline of Great Britain. Is that right? Um, is as much as I can, because yeah. um, with with work and family life allowing. So um, I started it um, in November running about a half to a full marathon a week. And I was given one day, I had one day off work to do it. So I would travel one day, run one day, and then back to work. So, but I think uh, um, I might be able to manage more time off work to do that from now. And the parts of the coastline that you aren't able to run, you, you're going to swim? Um, as much as possible, swimming the channels that, that break up the coastline. So um, this Saturday, all being well, I will run the shoreline, uh, which will mean crossing three estuaries, four estuaries channels. Um, and the main stay of the concept of coastline running is collecting shoreline plastic while I'm running, um, while we're running, and putting it into the one bag, zero waste bag as I run. And then, so then we have good data about the amount of plastic that we stopped going into the sea. And also that provides a, a good platform from which I can then speak with local councils about what are you doing about this this problem? And I hope in time to engage properly with with the Crown Estate because they, in inverted commas, own, uh, 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 they are landlords of a lot, a lot of our shoreline. And I think they've got a duty of care to, to, to be doing something like what I'm doing more okay. often. You're putting a spotlight on this. I, I saw a line that you mentioned about was a hundred k's of plastic every year dumped into the sea. It's like equivalent of a, a truckload every day. That's what I think it's that data from the I think the World Economic Forum. They say the equivalent of one truckload of plastic is chucked into the seas. Um, uh, every day. It's amazing, is it, it? What people forget is that lasts for centuries. Plastic doesn't break down. Correct. Everything, everything degrades uh, with time. Whether it's one month, one year, ten years, or hundred years, or a thousand years, but plastic or pol- different polymers um, degrade over centuries. You know, it takes centuries, so it, it'll be there for generations and generations and generations. And so I think, first of all, we've got to stop the flood of this happening, as well as immediately stop what we can right now, but also to stop the flood, because literally hundreds of millions of tonnes of plastic is being generated through packaging and products by America alone. And this, we've just got to get to grips with it. And I, I, I'm not an ideologue in the sense that saying, oh, no, to plastic on any front. You know, it's incredibly important uh, material for a part of our modernity is enabled and um, relies on the use of plastic. I mean, plastic medical gloves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, very important. We've just got to 
we, the world, the humans in the world, have just got to learn how to, to manage it, just create it and dispose of it. There was a beach recently in Dublin. They did a clean-up and they started putting up on Twitter the, the plastics that they had found. And it was unbelievable. There was, there was, it was like a trip down memory lane. There was like, to- like Star Wars toys from the 70s and the 70s. packaging. And there was like from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, yeah. old packaging. Amazing. They look practically new. Yeah, inc- in- in- incredible. I mean, what in the in the environmental base, for want of a better expression, um, people refer to the great acceleration, which uh, regarding plastics specifically, actually, was from the fifties. Suddenly, there's this huge take up of producing and using plastic in all its forms. But what, where I have to temper my my rage and and uh, radicalism is that i believe that the plastics industry behaved on on the subject of their product very similarly to the tobacco industry Mm. um and even the the petrochemical industry and the uh, chemical industry and the tobacco industry strategy, call it the tobacco strategy, was in the early 50s that they, that industry, knew of the harm to health that smoking causes. They knew that, but they commissioned uh, people with doctor in front of them, names of doctors and scientists, to cast doubt on it, and this is all very well described in the book called *The Merchants of Doubt*, where because the scientific exercise, it's very difficult to say we are a hundred percent certain of this fact. And so, what they, the tobacco industry, did was was use that dynamic in the scientific exercise and saying, "Oh, it's not proven. Um, smoking causes cancer. It's not proven." And it's the, the tobacco strategy was employed about all the big environmental harms of, of, of the last 50 years so it involved it it was employed against uh, the ozone layer oh it's not proven until i think Reagan and thatcher then realized and stepped up and legislated and and that was dealt with but it was um about acid rain even about what we are now fully uh, uh, i think aware of 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 climate and ecological change that oh it's not proven oh global warming it's not proven you know so i then start ranting and getting (laughs) angry because um this is one of the reasons why we're in this desperate hole at the moment regarding the world's environment and our future you're an environmental campaigner is what i would call you and the podcast being moments of clarity i'm interested to know how you became so interested in this topic. Was there a moment or two moments in your life that led you to this, to do the Coastline Runner, to do such a big thing and to create such awareness? Yes, uh, thank you. Memories are uh, a, a difficult thing. Hmm. But um, I think two very significant points in my, two significant points that has led have led me to where I am now, starting the Coastline Runner Initiative. 30 years ago or so, um, uh, sailing off Hong Kong in the South China Sea, beautiful day, and eventually the wind mm. dies. And so we're becalmed for maybe two hours. 
and um, that gave me uh, the time, and because there was nothing else to do, it was desperately hot and boring, I ended up just staring at, at the sea and then became horrified by underneath the sea surface. I just saw this colossal amount of very small plastic waste. And that was mind-blowing to me. And I thought at that time, I thought, oh, well, that's because of nearby Guangzhou. Uh, that's, you know, it's a, it's a relatively local problem. Yeah. And so now that I am fully aware of this is a global pro- pro- problem of, of, of mega imp- importance and, and significance. I think that's um, a key moment. Um, secondly, um, uh, 17 years ago, or nearing 20 years ago, I had a life-changing accident, an extreme accident, where I think in the most it is the most extreme example of being literally stopped in your tracks where I was, I had a, a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, where um, I was then resuscitated and then in a coma for months and uh, made this extraordinarily good recovery. And so the perception that months in bed coming out of this coma and then uh, not being able to, then being slightly paralysed down my right side um, and so enforced bed for for months uh, forces a kind of moment of clarity and the proper thinking time of actually working out um, uh, important things about life. So, um, I, yeah, a significant moment uh, in my life was my moment of such proximity to death itself. But, uh, but that's given me a good perspective. And where did that happen? That uh, in. 2005, in Transylvania, the northern part of Romania, uh, in August, I on a Sunday, I was riding a horse uh, with a friend of mine at that time. Um, and I don't remember it at all myself because of this big brain, brain injury, but in Transylvania, in grassy Transylvania, he discovered me after seeing my loose horse, discovered me uh, beside a, a rock in grassy Transylvania, a rock um, having fallen off, not breathing, and he resuscitated me and essentially saved my life. And he's a, he's a man called Sebastian Koga. And he now uh, is a uh, brain surgeon in the States. Um, but he certainly saved my, my life. Wow. And, and how long did it take you to ha- fully recover? 
to fully recover. Um, I I don't know if I if I have. Um, <laughs> I um, have physically fully recovered enough to 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 run half marathons or marathons a week. Um, uh, I think the main recovery took me five years. Um, uh, my w- partner, my wife Christina, would say for the f- the most difficult were the first three, four years, where um, I I had uh, I was had dropped all my um, <coughs> social abilities of life and I was uh, a just very pointed to to the point with people very um difficult to live with I suppose and did it change your you know your perspective on life and our time here in the planet then yes I think to an to an extent but at the same time there is the the aging process you know right now I'm <laughs> Over, over 50 so I think I, I can't separate the two uh, completely but I I think it, it did as I said before literally stop me in my tracks um, and I think now I'm 50 I've got probably if I'm lucky 20 more years of an, a, a good active life and I think we should use the room uh, this time um wisely for for others and, and for the planet really yeah. um yeah so i think the the accent <clears throat> it's given me cause to proper really properly reflect on well if i am recovering from so well what what is the next chapter of my life going to be and that, that then led me to <clears throat> environmentalism in a way I <clears throat> um, this the accident happened in Transylvania <clears throat> um, 10 years later after the accident 10 years after doing research and recovery I then started a project in schools called A Future Without Rubbish and in Romanian Vitor Faragunoi um, and that was about educating about the environment and about waste recycling um, and that worked with councils, with waste businesses and communities in clearing public spaces of litter. And it had a remarkable effect on the recycling rates uh, for these communities we worked in. So much so that that started in Transylvania. Um, then Westminster Council wanted to start it in some schools, so they started it. And so that is how A Future Without Rubbish really started back in at the end of 2015. Um, and why in Transylvania? Well, because my accident happened there. So I had this strange emotional, not strange, I have, I have this emotional attachment to the place, Transylvania, where I so nearly died and so in a way I was reborn <laughs> born again born again Transylvanian <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing and you know 
your so a future is there a website or something that we can direct people towards about this yes um the, the website is called clear public space um dot org um which is our main website and on on social media on instagram i think we might be just called the coastline runner now on on both um instagram is the coastline runner and twitter is clear pub space and the thing about um you know anything to do with the environment i suppose is it's such a daunting big subject that people find it maybe easier. I don't know if that's the right word to do nothing, you know, and you're doing something which is great. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Fergal, I I think it's the key for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I, for me, I, it's such a daunting subject and um, because it's so massive that the, both the problem and the solutions are so big that, then the psychological response might be to do nothing. Um, and so I'm trying to do something, uh, but just it is just one part of the, the, the problem. It's just one part. I mean, uh, I could, it's uh, the subject of a, a different podcast, I think, but I could be here until Christmas describing to you the, the, the mass of the problem. Um, so it's just a small part trying to make our relationship with our environment improved. One of my bugbears, uh, ideological points, really, I suppose, um, is that so much, so many of us talk about uh, the environment, the environment. So it's a separate entity. It's just the, the office. Mm. the environment that's problematic because we are our environment and why it's problematic is that allows us to compartmentalize it and so what we do to to it it you know doesn't affect us when in fact it does and i think it would change things very significantly if we fully appreciated the fact that we are our environment so when for example you not you Mm -hmm. uh, sure you don't do this but when people uh, wrap up their dog poo bag in a in in a plastic bag and just leave it in the sand dunes which i've encountered a lot in my coastal running you know they think oh it's just someone else's problem it's the environment someone else's problem that they are affecting themselves in that we, the medical evidence isn't yet there, but plastic polymers, different polymers that aren't a, a passive material, you know, they do leach uh, and attract. Um, they leach uh, both chemicals that we humans have put into them to make them the best substance, and they do then a, a, attract other toxins. And so to think, oh, it does no harm to leave this plastic bag in, in the, in, on the shoreline is incorrect. Like six seconds are about emotion, intelligence and empathy. And that's why we're so interested in this topic, because I think you summed it up right there. It's about empathy for our planet and for our future and for our children, our children's children. Yes, that is 
Correct. Uh, another problem, <laughs> not to continue in, and turn this into a big rant, um, another problem is that I believe that until governments acts on this subject, we are doomed. And I think one thing that the recent pandemic proved was that when government realises there's problems that they have to try and solve and deal with, they can be very radical. You know, and I would determine that that same response of the radicalism of government's reactions about dealing with the pandemic must be is required uh, regarding our environment. So I think radical action is required, and it can't rely on you buying your reusable coffee cup or whatever, or whatever it is, or only buying your energy from renewable sources. It can't rely on your individual behaviour. It has to be government power. I mean, you know, governments have sent people to the bloody moon. <laughs> governments banned slavery. You know, So action is both possible and necessary when they switch on to a mission. I think that has to happen. That has to happen. Otherwise, otherwise, uh, I'm not optimistic. Yeah, and you're right. Like COVID showed that and say their response to Ukraine invasion has shown that governments, when the need is there, they can act very quickly and they'll have the support. I agree totally. It has to first come from the government and then the people. I believe that because the um, um, and, and one can part of why this why that is necessary is that at the moment to do the right thing in the vertical commas uh, environmentally too much the contingency of of people who are well off enough to to do it so you know are you well off enough for example to buy a different car from your existing one that is electric and you know, are you well off enough to to Insulate you know, your house, even you know, get new yeah, windows yeah. and doors. Cor- and- exactly. At the moment, it relies on on this, and, and the most the most tiny example of of this it being expensive to do the right thing is you know, in in the, the train station while doing the coastline runner initiative, you know, uh, needing to buy some water and. The water that is made out of the recycled plastic bottle rather than just virgin plastic, so that would be doing the right thing, it costs 30% more than other water bottles. And the government, just in the blink of an eye, could change that radically, saying that circular economy products like a plastic bottle made out of recycled plastic doesn't incur the same rate of VAT, for example. That would just change things economically and then really radically for the better. So governments can change the economics of behaviour and I think that is critical for behavioural change. I think behavioural change is about the three E's, really. Enterprise, economics and education. I I think those are the ingredients for behavioural change. Just lastly, on the personal level, are you nervous? How do you feel? I'm, ex- 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 I'm not a, a, a professional athlete at all, but I can now understand a little bit of what it's like. I'm just incredibly nervous. Um, 
we're starting the Cosine Runner, restarting the Cosine Runner initiative four months. Um, am I fit enough? Am I going to make it? And most importantly, in the UK, is it going to be warm enough? Because I had to, I got injured four months ago from it being, from getting frostbite on my, on my feet and losing a toenail and it becoming infected. So I'm incredibly nervous at it because literally just five minutes ago, I think I saw uh, out of the office window here some snow falling. So I'm, I'm very nervous. The very best mm. of luck with this project. We'll be following you. Your, your hashtag, it's for people to follow you. It's Coastline Runner yes. on all social media. So the very best of luck with it. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Fergal. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our guest this week. I would ask that you please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review so that others discover this podcast. Six Seconds is a global nonprofit dedicated to growing emotional intelligence worldwide. Our work involves supporting individuals, teams and organisations to develop and practice emotional intelligence to help increase personal and organisational effectiveness. For more information on emotional intelligence, and how 6 Seconds Europe can help you, please go to 6seconds.org slash EU. Take care and see you next week. You are listening to Moments of Clarity, Journeys with EQ by 6 Seconds Europe.